0: Welcome back to the show, guys and gals. You're listening to Eddie V's Horror Show, and I'm Edward Villanova, the host of said horror show. This is episode number three, and if you've been listening along so far, you know what we're doing here already. But if not, I'm a horror writer, and I like to talk about scary stuff. I give a little writing advice to my fellow aspiring horror novelists and short story writers, and I review other works of horror. Today is going to be sort of a review, but also a story prompt for those who write. And I'm going to tell you right now, here at the top of the episode, I anticipate pissing off some horror fans. I intend to cross some lines in this episode. Some unpopular opinions are going to be shared. Some of you may even consider this episode to be horror movie sacrilege. Now, I know it's sort of understood that in the world of horror podcasting that you talk about the Friday the 13th movies on Friday the 13th. but I figure my first episode was Friday the 13th, or it was supposed to come out on Friday the 13th, it came out a couple days later. But I recorded it on Friday the 13th, and I intended to publish it on Friday the 13th, so I'm going to give myself a pass. Yeah, I think that makes enough sense, right? So we're going to be talking today about something that is probably a little bit sacrosanct to a lot of horror writer, or not horror writers but horror appreciators people who like horror movies we're going to be discussing those classic golden movies from the 1970s and 80s really the staples of what has become modern horror and inspect them and we're going to dissect them and we are going to go over them and talk about what made them great in the first place, and we're also going to talk about where they went wrong, because to be perfectly frank, I think that they did, in fact, go wrong. And don't worry, I have reasons for my opinions, and I will back them up. I'm sure a lot of you will disagree, but here we go. We'll go ahead and start with Friday the 13th. A lot of devoted horror fans already know that Friday the 13th started out as a ripoff of Halloween. And really, you know, if if you look at the premise of both, they're similar. Where Halloween is widely regarded as the original slasher. I don't think it necessarily is, but uh, it's widely regarded as the original slasher. Friday the 13th followed right in its footsteps. And again, we have big guy creepy white mask. I mean, of course, if you go all the way back to the very first Friday the 13th, we didn't even have that. But we did, it was a slasher. Uh, There was no Jason yet, or there was no uh, Jason stabbing people with machete yet, but it was in fact a slasher. But while it was originally a ripoff of Halloween, Friday the 13th quickly grew into its own beast. It became, it developed its own style. It grew beyond just being a copycat. And became something unique at least for the time of course many other slashers followed but it did become something all on its own where Halloween was more of like a gritty uh, certainly horror but almost a crime drama at certain points you know we have the police trying to catch Michael Myers trying to keep up with him and whereas Friday the 13th is really more of just a killing spree. You know, I I mean, Halloween was too, for sure. But Friday the 13th really developed more of this visceral, brutal, and it sounds twisted to accompany fun with with brutal, but more of a fun atmosphere, really. Uh, Slashers are fun to watch. They give us a thrill. And Friday the 13th went about giving audiences that thrill in a very different way than Halloween eventually campiness is something that entered our lexicon more recently but you know camp horror that's a new genre it's much newer than Friday the 13th anyway and going back and looking at those old Friday the 13th movies the original ones before they were called Jason movies back when they were still Friday the 13th movies, I would say that they fit squarely into camp horror. At least, I want to say starting with part three onward, there was this campiness to it. And honestly, what am I talking about? They got even campier after they were Jason movies, after whoever it was. It was New Line, I think, at one point. I can never remember the, the studios, but one studio took it over. Uh, from the original studio, and they stopped being Friday the 13th movies and they became Jason movies. They stopped being Friday the 13th part 5, 6, you know, and they became Jason X, you know, Jason Goes to Hell, Jason versus Freddy. That's because it was a different studio making those movies. And that studio, whoever it was, I can't remember, um, they definitely embraced the campiness. Whereas, you know, with Halloween, when Rob Zombie took that over, he definitely did not have any camp vision in that. He went even grittier, even more brutal, even more visceral, even more scary. That's really where the line is drawn, I think, between Friday the 13th and Halloween. I mean, certainly, people getting killed with a machete, that's that's dark, but it's not the same kind of dark as Halloween is. Really, it's great because Even though it started out as a a copy of Halloween, it became its own thing, it developed its own style, and it really became something great. And of course, anybody in the world of podcasting or YouTubers, they can tell you the same thing. Consistency is one of the keys to success, and they came out with one of those every year. And audiences could look forward to another Friday the 13th movie, and that really did a lot for growing the uh, the fan base for the Friday the 13th movies, and all of them, really. Halloween, and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Child's Play, but to a lesser extent, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But, uh, yeah, every year they came out with another one. And so it really got solidified as a cinematic culture, especially in the horror realm, of course. But when you come out with another movie every year we end up with i really feel like less passion for the project each year and less maybe less prep time and writing because we're trying to push out another one every year but even even if i'm wrong about that even if they were really committed to it coming out with a new movie on such a rigorous schedule developing an entire movie every year to come out that's kind of a big undertaking and it certainly makes for a lot of movies and friday the 13th i believe has the most sequels and when you keep something going for that long you know we started with the first one and i think it was 1980 decades ago And we're still coming out with them. I mean, I think the most recent one was the the remake in 2009. And it it wouldn't be outside of the realm of possibility for another one, another Jason movie to come out. In fact, I would consider it likely that we're going to see another Jason movie uh, at some point in the future. And when you keep something like that going for long enough, you end up with something that has become known as Flanderization. If you don't know what Flanderization is, it's sort of a, I want to say a phenomenon, I don't know if that's really the right term for it or not, but we'll go with it. A phenomenon where a concept, or especially a character, slowly becomes more and more of a caricature of itself the longer it goes on. In case you couldn't tell, the name comes from the character Ned Flanders from The Simpsons who started out as a mild-mannered, soft-spoken, religious, nice guy to uh, eventually being this Bible-thumping zealot who is disconnected from reality. He's mentally unstable and he's more of a joke, really, rather than the character he was originally written as. And I know a lot of you are going, how the hell does that apply to Friday the Thirteenth? It definitely applies to Friday the Thirteenth, and specifically to Jason Voorhees. We're gonna go past the first one where he's still a drowned kid in the lake, right? If you're not familiar with Friday the Thirteenth, Jason Voorhees is not the killer in the original Friday the 13th it's his mother Pamela Voorhees she's the killer she's killing the camp counselors because her son Jason drowned as a child in Camp Crystal Lake while the uh, camp counselors were having a little fun time with each other so you know let's just we don't have to nerf that they were having sex while her son drowned in the lake and you know sure I can see how that would make a parent unstable and, you know, I mean, maybe taking it all the way to murder, that's a little extreme, but I I get it, you know. I get, I can see where you might hold a grudge against those camp counselors. But we're going to move past the original Friday the 13th, and we're going to start with Friday the 13th Part 2, where Jason is featured as the killer in the movie. Now, if you haven't seen it, this is before... Hockey mask, right? This is the pre hockey mask era of Friday the 13th. He's just wearing like a burlap sack over his head or whatever. They hadn't uh, come up with the iconic image of Jason yet. He was really more of a almost like a survivalist type, living out in the woods in this like ramshackle cabin, definitely mentally deranged. He has uh, a shrine. Uh, in his little shack there, of with his mother's head and like a sweater—the sweater she used to wear—and uh, I mean, yeah, some candles is really just—it's like a shrine to his mother set up, and it's put across really. You know, he has a motive. He wants to kill the counselors because they killed his mother. Really, we're kind of flipping the original premise on its head, right? Uh, the, the mother is killing the camp counselors because they let her son drown. Now in part two, we have Jason killing the camp counselors because one of them killed his mother. And therein lies a pretty prominent plot hole in the Friday the 13th universe that's never really been addressed, but, you know, it it doesn't matter. It's camp. It's not meant to be a well-thought-out storyline, really. It's meant to be a fun time uh, that gives you some, some cheap scares and thrills and it does that very well but jason while he is he is a tank he is meant to be feared he was still human he was still a person and there's one scene in part two that really stands out to me where um, the final girl ends up with a chainsaw she gets a chainsaw and she's revving that chainsaw up and there's a moment where she has the chainsaw she is advancing toward Jason with a chainsaw and uh, and Jason is in retreat. He's afraid of the chainsaw. He's backing up. He's getting out. And that is more realistic. That's, That's so much more realistic than what he became eventually through the unfortunate process of this flanderization that happened. Or, you know, some people would regard it as very fortunate. Some people like what happened with uh, with Jason in the following movies, and, I mean, don't get me wrong, I am a fan of Friday the 13th, and all of all of those movies from the 70s and 80s on into the 90s and the 2000s, I, I love them all. But I'm, I'm not bashing them by any means, especially not Friday the 13th. That's one of my favorites. But he was still vulnerable. He still had weaknesses. And, you know, at the end, we see that final girl Put on Pamela Voorhees' sweater in that shrine that Jason built. I'm sorry, this is going to be full of spoilers. I'm not going to hold back. Uh, If if you haven't seen the Friday the 13th movies, go watch all of them, all 87 of them or whatever, and then come back and listen to this. Like They're good. Go have a few drinks. Bring a few people in and watch these movies because they are fun. They're great. And I love every minute of them. But then in the later movies, we end up with a different Jason than we started with. We end up with this unstoppable killing machine that isn't phased by anything or anyone and is eventually, for all intents and purposes, indestructible. We go from part two, where he's a survivalist, to part three, where he is really just a maniac. I mean, he's a maniac in the second one as well, but... Um, he's he's m- almost supernatural at that point. Um, nothing seems to scare him anymore. Then, in Friday the 13th, the final chapter, he gets offed by Corey Feldman, <laughs> child Corey Feldman, the very beginning of the Tommy Jarvis saga with his own machete, right? He hacks, his, he hacks him right in the brain, right? He, he kills him dead. And after that they left us with no choice but to go supernatural on if we were gonna continue to watch Jason be the killer. And so in, now not so much in The New Beginning because it was a copycat killer in The New Beginning or in A New Beginning, I guess it's called. But after that, we see Tommy Jarvis with the help of a friend go out to the graveyard where Jason Voorhees is buried and just to make sure he's not only dead but double dead they dig him up and they decide to kill him again because maybe that corpse isn't quite dead enough so Tommy Jarvis ends up picking up uh, like a piece of fence or something like that and he drives it into Jason's heart I guess (laughs) <laughs> I feel like up to this point in the entire series, we've been more or less realistic. And this is really the the first hint of it going completely off the rails. And it does. We see Tommy Jarvis having impaled Jason Voorhees' dead, desiccated corpse with a piece of fence and some time must have passed because he was still a child when Jason Voorhees or when he killed Jason Voorhees right when he chopped his brain in half and he was dead dead to adult Tommy Jarvis digging up his corpse stabbing it with a piece of fence and then possibly drawing inspiration from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that piece of fence gets struck by lightning and somehow resurrects the dead, desiccated corpse of Jason Voorhees. We have zombie Jason, and it's the beginning of a new era. This is really where it crosses the line from being a slasher to being like a campy horror slasher. Because now... There, there. I mean, there is no chance of him, you know, being killed with something as pedestrian as a machete to the brain, or you know, getting shot. You know, that was a possibility before. It's not anymore because he's a zombie now, and of course, it only got more ridiculous from there because he faced off against a psychic, and then he was not only a zombie but also a cyborg. Uh, I believe between those two points, he went to hell. Uh, and we just we got more and more ridiculous still fun yes absolutely still fun still campy still watchable if you are not looking for a serious movie going experience but if you are if you're looking to sit back with uh, a couple beers and some friends and some popcorn and, and watch and laugh all along the way and there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with that at all but it definitely is a far cry from where it began right from the survivalist Jason of part two who is still a human even if he's a deranged psychotic psychopathic human murderous human to a zombie cyborg who has been to hell literally and back Now here's where the potential horror movie sacrilege comes in on my part. I think that they missed a golden opportunity to take the Friday the 13th saga in a brand new direction that, in my opinion, would have been a lot more interesting than the path that they went down. And here's where I feel like they started going down a very promising path. That was, I mean, really, by comparison, was a much less memorable and uh, and certainly a less popular avenue than the other Jason movies. But with A New Beginning, we had a copycat killer who copies Jason's method of killing. He dons the hockey mask. He wields the machete. But the fact that it was not Jason Voorhees but someone else killing in the same method makes me wonder where it could have gone if they continued down that line instead of bringing Jason back. Now, I kind of understand why they decided to bring Jason Voorhees back as the killer. We're going to jump over into Halloween for a second. Halloween had some fallout when Halloween Part 3 came out. Halloween 1 and 2, in case you're not familiar, featured Michael Myers as the bad guy of the movie. Or the good guy, depending on how you look at it. Whether you're, you're rooting for the survivors to live or get hacked to pieces by Michael Myers. Halloween was not intended to be only about Michael Myers. It was intended to be an anthology. A lot of people don't know that. And when Part 3 came out, Uh, Season of the Witch it had nothing to do with Michael Myers it was it might as well have not even been in the same universe it is about uh, some witches who are trying to get children to wear a mask during a TV event that will eventually kill these children for some sort of ritual and fans didn't like it. Fans were very disappointed that Michael Myers did not make an appearance. He wasn't even mentioned, uh, that I recall, It wasn't even mentioned in Halloween Part 3. And so there was some fallout. There was some pushback. So the studio went, okay, we get it. Loud and Fear, you want more Michael Myers. You did not like no Michael Myers. So we're going back to Michael Myers. And pa- Halloween Part 4 was the return of Michael Myers and was so titled. I can see why the studio decided to absolutely make the next Friday the 13th movie, after the copycat killer, to be Jason Voorhees again, even though he was dead. And I guess the only way they could figure to make that happen, since he is clearly dead, was to resurrect him from the dead. And honestly, I think that was a mistake. Because we could have gone in a much more interesting direction if we had a series of other copycat killers copying Jason Voorhees, but maybe not really copying him so much as they are compelled to copy him. Let me explain. What are we told about Camp Crystal Lake from the very beginning, from the lips... Of creepy old weird Ralph right there's a blood curse that was a bad uh, impression of Ralph but you know he, he says it in I think at least three if not four of the movies before he eventually gets killed before the studio was like okay people have had enough of this guy let's just kill him he says repeatedly that there is a curse on Camp Crystal Lake and I think it would be much more interesting if we saw that curse be the cause of Pamela Voorhees going on her killing spree to Jason to the copycat killer donning the hockey mask, wielding a machete, and killing. What if it wasn't just a copycat? What if it was someone who was possessed, for lack of a a better term? by this evil, by this curse, by this blood curse of Camp Crystal Lake. What if that was the cause of the continued murders? I think it would have been much more interesting if in the next movie, we didn't see Jason come back from the dead, but we saw someone else take up that mantle, take up that role as the killer, a new person who was chosen by the curse to continue the killing. Maybe it's the spirit of Jason Voorhees. Maybe it's the spirit of Pamela Voorhees. I'd be cool with that. You know, maybe, maybe the ghost of Pamela Voorhees is influencing other people to believe that they are Jason Voorhees. What a twist would it have been if we never even saw Jason Voorhees as the killer? What if everyone who has ever been the killer at Camp Crystal Lake has only believed themselves to be Jason Voorhees, right? So the copycat killer was not just a copycat killer. He was someone influenced by the curse or by the ghost of Mrs. Voorhees or whatever to believe himself to be Jason Voorhees, and that's why he continued the killing spree. I think that we could have gone to some very interesting places with that. We could have had a number of interesting takes on Jason if we had other people who believe themselves to be Jason, or at least driven to have taken up the role or even the duty as the killer of Camp Crystal Lake. Think of all the interesting and diverse versions of Jason we could have seen. We could have seen female Jason, we could have seen martial artist Jason, we could have seen genius Jason, or bodybuilder Jason, or Asian Jason, or dog Jason, or <laughs> I mean at that, you know, at that point if we're gonna embrace camp, let's embrace camp, why don't we have a dog Jason? Okay, maybe Doc Jason wouldn't have been very watchable, but still, we could have had some very interesting iterations of Jason. And the antagonist moves from being the killer to being this curse. And the direction they could have taken it... I know uh, along the way, they ended up doing this thing where it seemed almost like they wanted to wrap it up. They were trying to wrap it up each movie, and I think it was because they didn't know how much longer this was going to last. How much longer the interest in Friday the 13th as a franchise was going to last. So, it seemed like they, they wanted to make every movie a possible end point to the franchise, without completely shutting it down. They always wanted to leave a door open, but also make it Possible that this is the last one without leaving the audience hanging Instead of trying to kill this unstoppable killing machine every time over and over again and in many different ways To trying to lift the curse and see the great thing about curses is You never know when it's actually lifted if the grudge has taught us anything you can lift a curse but you can never be sure that it's really completely lifted. There's a series of independent games, video games, yes, we're crossing into video games now, and if you're not a video game person, I am sorry, but we're gonna do it because I think that this is applicable. There's a series of games, independent games, called, well, I don't know, Stranger, I guess? The Stranger series? The first game is called Five Days of Stranger. And they went in, the, in a direction that is very similar to what I think they should have done with Friday the 13th. You have a killer who was killed some time ago. And that killer is inhabiting a, like a tiki doll. And whoever touches that tiki doll uh, is possessed by the soul of that killer. And this killer, I mean, really, is very Jason Voorhees-inspired, kills with a machete, but the look is a little different. Uh, He wears a welding mask and an apron, sort of like a, uh, almost a, a leather face apron from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but he kills with a machete. And anybody who touches that doll dons the welding mask and the apron and the machete and kills. And this went on to Seven Days of Skeptic, which was the next game, and they made several of them after that. I've only ever played the first two, Five Days of Stranger and Seven Days of Skeptic. If you're a video game person, they are very interesting, and I do recommend playing them. They're of the point-and-click adventure variety, so especially if that's your bag. They're really good games. They're really good horror games. And, man, I would love to see more games like that, more horror point-and-click adventures. I don't know. I have, I have a soft spot in my heart, a nostalgic place in my heart for those point-and-click adventures. And, of course, I love horror, so I'd really like to give you a little more information about the Five Days of Stranger series. They were indie games developed by uh, Ben Croshaw. They came out in, uh, no, the one that came out in 2003, that was Five Days of Stranger. And uh, the sequels, Six Days of Sacrifice, and seven days of skeptic and uh, i i really recommend playing them again if you are a uh, a fan of, of if you're a, if you're a gamer and especially if you're a fan of the point and click adventure games um sort of like the um uh the clock tower games it's very similar to that that feel <clears throat> but i mean in my opinion they're better they're better than clock tower Uh, It's like Clock Tower meets uh, Monkey Island or uh, Maniac Mansion. It's very, very good. Very, very fun. Uh, If you want to play it, they are free. You can download them for free from uh, at least at the time of this recording, it was still around uh, from the website fullyramblematic.com. Not a sponsor. Um, I don't think that this guy uh, Ben Croshaw has any sponsors or is a sponsor to anyone, but uh, but yeah, I, I think that if you are a video game person, you really should play these games. They're very, very good. Very, very fun. Do you live in the Houston area? Are you tired of rent going up in your neighborhood every few months? Finding a good, reasonably priced place to call home in a rapidly growing city can be difficult and stressful. But if you know where to look, You can end your search today and be more than happy with what you find. If you want a spacious apartment in a killer location without having to overpay rent, head over to 5455 Richmond Avenue in Houston and schedule a tour. The location is perfect for writers, horror fans, and people trying to find clues to a mystery. That's 5455 Richmond Avenue in Houston, Texas. Look them up on Yelp or Google. Just like Jason Voorhees suffers from this Flanderization, or I should say the whole Friday the 13th franchise suffers from Flanderization, so does Michael Myers. So does the Halloween franchise. We see Michael Myers go from this deranged guy who just likes killing folks to someone who is compelled to kill anyone who is a member of his family or anyone who is blood-related to him to eventually it being revealed that he is possessed by the spirit of a killer who cannot be killed. And much like Jason Voorhees, he becomes an invulnerable tank, a killing machine, a force of nature, I think is how John Carpenter even described him. Uh, He's a force of nature that can't be stopped. And again, it makes for very entertaining uh, cinema. But I think that it could have been better. I think that instead of trying to find more ways to make Michael Myers invulnerable in the Halloween movies, we should have just uh, capitalized on... Okay, so I, I, I always saw Michael Myers as a much smarter killer than Jason Voorhees. Jason is more of, like, the dumb, brute killer, right? Especially in, like, part two, he was really clumsy. He fell over a lot like a turtle turned over on his shell, you know? He was very foilable, incorrigible even. But I always saw Michael Myers as a much smarter killer, and I think that where these two franchises should have diverged was that friday the 13th should have gone the route of the blood curse other people continue to take up the mantle as the killer of crystal lake michael myers on the other hand he was a lot smarter he was a lot more difficult to trick i would have liked to see that that franchise continue because he always evaded capture he eluded police uh, you know, I would I would like to see that continue because he was too smart to be caught. That's how I would have liked to see that franchise continue. But then, of course, we have the problem <laughs> of continuing to make him more interesting. I think it would have been a better plotline if we had seen him get smarter and smarter instead of trying to just add these, quite frankly, ridiculous reasons that he's still at it. Now, Nightmare on Elm Street and Child's Play, both, from the very beginning, from the get-go, they were already supernatural. They weren't just people in the same way that that Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers were. There was already a supernatural element there. And uh, so I, I think that those more or less progressed in a very interesting way. I don't have as much of a problem with the way that they progressed, again, I'm saying I have a problem. I don't. I don't have a huge problem with this. I think it would have been more interesting if they changed the franchise in the ways that uh, you know that I'm detailing here. But I don't think that they're bad movies. I think that they could have been a lot more interesting. But they are still a lot of fun. I want to make that perfectly clear because they're good. They're fun. If you haven't seen them, I highly recommend every one of them. Some of them more than others, for sure. Jason Takes Manhattan. That was, you know, if you're going to skip one, that's a good one to skip. Jason Goes to Hell, also not that great. But they're fun. (laughs) The entire franchise is fun. But I actually think that uh, the way that Nightmare on Elm Street and Child's Play both evolved was really good. We took this supernatural killer who started out as more or less a straight slasher. Supernatural, yes, but still a slasher. And we gave them attitudes, right? They both became these wisecracking killers that, I mean, that was, they were really campy, and I, I really enjoyed them. I have some thoughts on Child's Play. You probably know someone, or maybe you are someone, who was traumatized by Chucky as a child. And maybe even that traumatization continues, or that fear at least, continues into adulthood. I hear this a lot from people. And I think that either by design or by happenstance, the creators of Child's Play ended up developing an antagonist that was directed at children. And I I really, I don't know, I I, I don't feel like that was intentional. I don't think that was meant to specifically scare kids. But you know, I didn't watch Child's Play until I was an adult. I didn't watch them uh, when I first got into horror. I was probably five or six years old when I saw Alien. As I mentioned in, in the first episode, Alien was the movie that got me into horror movies. If it had been Child's Play, I don't know that I would have gotten into them because I can see how that would be especially terrifying to a child. If you were terrorized by Chucky as a child, then you should go back and watch those movies, because honestly, especially like the original ones, they're pretty good. The special effects of the Chucky doll walking around on its own I don't know how they did that back in the 80s. It was before they had any kind of convincing animatronics. It was certainly before any sort of believable CGI. It's very uh, admirable even just for that. But there are interesting movies, and if you were scared to death of him when you were a kid, go back and watch them again. It is still scary, but it's not as scary as it is if you watched it when you were a kid. And of course, again, he became this wise, cracking jackass. <laughs> and it's, it's hilarious. And today, I have a hard time seeing how an adult can really be afraid of Chucky. And if you are, like, I don't, uh, no offense, you know, I don't, if you're scared of Chucky, that's maybe that's just your personality, I don't know. I do recommend if you were scared by Chucky as a child, go back and watch it again. You might feel different about it as an adult. And if you stick with it into the uh, Bride of Chucky, Cult of Chucky era, you know, then you know, you if you like campy horror, you know, that's pretty damn campy. That's that's ridiculous, and ridiculous in a good way. Now, most of these movies have gotten remakes. The Friday the Thirteenth remake in, I think it was two thousand nine, somewhere around there. That was okay. I don't think it was great. I think that they were possibly trying to reboot the franchise, but they did it in a way that wasn't as fun as it was originally. And uh, I would not be opposed to seeing another reboot of Friday the 13th, or at least more Friday the 13th movies in the same vein as the originals. The Friday the 13th movies, not the Jason movies, right? The original studio that came out with them. Um, I would love to see more of that. Nightmare on Elm Street has also gotten a reboot. I'll be perfectly honest with you, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't really weigh in on whether it's good or not. Uh, Evil Dead. The Evil Dead got a a reboot, and I thought that was great. It really... uh, I, I feel like they captured what Sam Raimi intended the original Evil Dead to be. And, I mean, as a Bruce Campbell fan myself... Seeing Bruce Campbell have a cameo in that movie was pretty awesome. I don't think that Friday the 13th did its remake or reboot or whatever you want to call it. I don't think that they did super great. I did think that the Halloween reboot was very good. Not so much the Rob Zombie reboot. I know a lot of people really like that, um, those two movies that he did. I don't really feel like they felt like Halloween if you like Rob Zombie they were very Rob Zombie style and this may be a little bit of a tangent but my problem with it is the same problem I have with most of Rob Zombie's movies people all of his characters are either just the scum of the earth just the worst kind of people or they're victims born victims don't have an ounce of fight in them and i get where he's going with that style i get what his intentions were in making characters like that from not just halloween but also house of a thousand corpses and its sequel the devil's rejects i get what he was doing but i just i don't i find that a very two-dimensional way to develop characters and he definitely did that with uh with his reboots of halloween and honestly, I feel like that's why they didn't get past two. Now, the newest remake, the one that came out last year, I think that that one was, uh, was really pretty good. I know a lot of people don't like it, but uh, I, I think that it's really putting Halloween back on the track that it should have been on in the first place. I don't think we should have ever departed from Michael Myers just being a psychopath who loves killing people. I think that's that's what worked, and that's what the most recent reboot tries to do, and I, I think it's better that way, honestly. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. I think that it's a much more fitting sequel to the original than the original sequel was, than Halloween, the original Halloween Part Two was. I think that the newest Halloween uh, is really going in a direction that is more interesting to me, at least. And that may be an unpopular opinion, but that's how I felt about it. Now, we can't talk about 80s horror without bringing up Hellraiser. I have a lot of feelings about Hellraiser. If you're not aware, Hellraiser, the movie, was written by Clive Barker, and it was based on Clive Barker's novel The Hellbound Heart. I think the original movie is very, very good. Uh, I'm I like the original Hellraiser a lot, and it sticks to the source material uh, pretty well. They made a few changes, uh, but overall, it's uh, it stayed pretty true to the original story. I mean, of course they did because the guy that wrote the novel also wrote the screenplay. And I'm gonna tell you, I want to like Hellraiser. I really do. I really want to like it, but I. I find myself in a place where I can't take it seriously anymore. And when I started analyzing why I like the original Hellraiser so much, certainly more than any of the others, I finally figured out what's wrong with the Hellraiser franchise. (sighs) Stick with me, folks. It's the Cenobites. Okay, Hellraiser fans, I know. Put down your torches and pitchforks for a minute and hear me out. The Cenobites are ridiculous. (laughs) The original premise is great. It's about a man whose appetite for lust has grown so extreme that nothing excites him anymore. Convinced that nothing on Earth can float his boat, he turns to the occult for excitement. So extreme, only the underworld can provide it. His delve into dark magic destroys his body and leaves a bit of him behind. A drop of blood allows him to start growing back his physical form, and he returns to the realm of the living as a barely alive, reanimated rotten corpse. It was a drop of blood in the movie, but it was a different bodily fluid in the book, and I say good on Clive Barker for changing it to blood because, come on, guy, why you gotta be gross like that? Anyway, the rotten corpse, Frank, reveals himself to his brother's wife, who he has a sexual history with. He convinces her to bring him victims who he can drain life force from and consume so that he can grow the rest of his body back, and she does. She seduces a series of men and brings them home to Frank so he can devour them, and with each victim he becomes more and more fleshed out, literally. Eventually the daughter, Kirsty, figures out that Uncle Frank is back and she finds out what he and her mother are doing, so she uses the puzzle box. The occult item that frank opened to bring about his own demise to summon the cenobites to drag him back to hell so here's my thoughts on that the cenobites are not actually a necessary part of the story i think it would have been better if frank was simply put down through conventional means we could still have the big twist where and spoiler alert for this 32 year old movie Frank kills his brother and wears his skin like an Edgar suit to trick the Cenobites. But instead of tricking the Cenobites, it would have been good enough just to trick Kirsty. Then either Frank lives on, which would have been a pretty dark ending, or he's killed through conventional means, a knife in the gut or a shotgun blast in the face. No need for people in goofy rubber suits and makeup playing the most ridiculous demons to ever lumber across the screen. And yes, I know a lot of people really like the Cenobites. And yes, Pinhead is a great character if you take all the pins out of his head and exchange his name from Pinhead to something better, like Kevin. Kevin is a better name than Pinhead. I mean, come on. That's ridiculous. It's the actor Doug Bradley who makes Pinhead great, and he could have just as easily filled a similar but far less cartoonish role. The other Cenobites are even stupider, with names like Butterball and Chatterer, who have no speaking lines and only exist for the visuals. The Cenobites are barely even in the original film, and it's the highest rated and best liked film of the franchise. I say either cut out the Cenobites entirely, which would have drastically changed the preceding films, or just have Kevin (laughs) or Pinhead as either a demon or some kind of BDSM genie in the puzzle box or whatever. Which reminds me, why does everyone want to open the puzzle box in the first place? When you really think about it, I mean, Frank didn't know what he was getting into. But why do people want to open it in the later films? Chains fly out and tear you to pieces, then you go to hell. And hell, even in the Hellraiser universe, is not somewhere you want to go. There's no trade like your soul for a great sexual experience, or three S&M style wishes, then your ass is grass. No, you just open it and die. And I know that there's supposed to be some gratification in being ripped to pieces by these chains, But it's over in a couple of seconds, I mean, how much pleasure could you possibly derive from those two seconds before you get dragged to hell? Anyway, those are a few examples of horror movies that could have been a lot better, some that did it pretty well, but most of them could have been better if they kept a better balance between fantastic and realistic. And that's really what all this comes down to. Fantastic versus realistic. Let me talk a little bit more about that. Stephen King said, It is not the physical or mental aberration in itself which horrifies us, but rather the lack of order which these situations seem to apply. In other words, it's not the monster itself or the curse or the killer that's scary. It's the existence of the monster that implies our understanding of what's possible is incorrect, that scares us the most. It's the shattering of the laws of nature you took for granted as constant, like zombies rising from the dead. On the other hand, Edgar Allan Poe said, Words have no power to impress the mind without the exquisite horror of their reality. So horror needs to have some degree of believability to be truly scary. If the zombies in your zombie story suddenly have laser eyes and the power of flight, you might lose your audience to being too fantastic. Certainly you can come up with some really campy stuff that way, but in terms of keeping things interesting and scary, that's the wrong direction in my opinion. Reality has to go hand in hand with the shattering of our understanding of the natural order of things. I know that those two points sound contradictory to each other, but they actually have to complement each other you have to bend the audience's understanding of nature, but not completely annihilate it. I'll use the examples of zombies rising from the dead again. Seeing zombies rise is scary, because it means our understanding that the dead stay dead and won't come back to eat us is challenged. But if those zombies start flying around and shooting laser beams out of their eyes, and summoning interdimensional portals that let fire-breathing bipedal whales into our dimension so they can sacrifice humans to the great flying spaghetti monster, that's no longer challenging our understanding of the natural. That's an everything-you-know-is-wrong funhouse, and it's not scary. I know the example of flying laser zombies is pretty extreme, But that type of horror, and I use the term loosely here, does exist. Movies like Sharknado or Leprechaun in Space come to mind, and those were meant to be silly, and they're fun and cheesy and funny. They don't take themselves seriously because they're not intended to be legitimate horror, but sometimes you end up with that by accident. And the flanderization of these characters, Michael Myers, and even more so with Jason Voorhees, It makes such a departure from the original source material or from the original movies from the original style of the franchise that it becomes something that it was never intended to be so if you're a fan of the original or the first sequel or first couple of sequels you won't necessarily be a fan of all of them and honestly I I think that that is unfortunate I think it's being untrue to the franchise. Anyway, those are a few examples of horror movies, really horror franchises, that could have been a lot better if they'd kept a better balance between the fantastic and the realistic. Some of you may hate me now, and if that's the case, I'm sorry. But that's just, that's how I feel about it. So that's about it for today, folks. I'll give you a little update on what I'm doing right now. Now, the, The last episode, episode number two was about evil cults. I mentioned that I'm working on an evil cult story of my own, but I didn't really tell you a whole lot about it. It's called A Grove of Dogwood Trees, and it's in the Southern Gothic style. That's something that I've always wanted to write, really. This is my first attempt at Southern Gothic, and it involves evil cults, and I'm really excited about it. So. That was why I decided to do the Evil Cults episode. We're going to have another episode coming up pretty soon about creatures. Good, scary creatures in horror movies, in books, and in uh, even in a few games. And I'm going to talk to you about that because I have a creature story coming out as well so yes as shameless as it is the topics of these are not every one of them but a lot of them are going to be selected due to whatever i'm working on at the time and a lot of that is organic because i've done a lot of research on it and so it's fun to kind of roll that into an episode my recommendation for this episode is uh, not going to be a, uh, a publisher of short fiction, the way it usually is. We did uh, Pseudopod, and before that we did Clark's World. Um, This time I'd like to recommend another podcast to you. If you like reviews of horror movies, especially older horror, but some new horror too, I highly recommend checking out the podcast Horror Heads. These two guys, Shannon and Mark, they have been horror fans their whole lives, a lot like myself. And I really enjoy their takes on uh, a lot of the older horror movies. They do a lot of um, lesser known horror, uh, a lot of well-known horror too. And they're just really entertaining to listen to. Uh, You can check them out on uh, Spotify or iHeartRadio, a few uh, Apple podcasts, a few other places. And uh, they have a Facebook page as well, HorrorHeads. Yeah, check them out if you like to hear reviews and just general appreciation of horror, uh, I really recommend them. Yeah, check them out. They're uh, They're really fun to listen to. All right, guys, that wraps up episode three. I will be back with you next week for episode number four. Thanks again for listening, and as always, stay creepy. Thanks for listening. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, or a work of horror you'd like to hear reviewed, be it a movie, book, game, or TV show, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at elvillanova00 at gmail.com. Check out my WordPress site to read more horror and writing topics, or to read through rough transcripts of the show. You can find that at edwardvillanova.wordpress.com. Lastly, you can follow me on Twitter at edwardvillanova.